Section 39 of Insurgent Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Insurgent Mexico by John Reed. Part 5. Carranza and Impression. When the Treaty of Peace was signed in Juarez, which ended the Revolution of 1910, Francisco Madero proceeded south toward Mexico City. Everywhere he spoke to enthusiastic and triumphant throngs of peons who acclaimed him the liberator. In Chihuahua he addressed the people from the balcony of the governor's palace. As he told of the hardships endured and the sacrifices made by the little band of men who had overthrown the dictatorship of Diaz forever, he was overcome with emotion. Reaching inside the room, he pulled out a tall, bearded man of commanding presence, and, throwing his arm about his shoulder, he said, in a voice choked with tears, "'This is a good man. Love and honor him always.' It was Venustiano Carranza, a man of upright life and high ideals, an aristocrat descended from the dominant Spanish race, a great landowner, as his family had always been great landowners, and one of those Mexican nobles who, like a few French nobles such as Lafayette in the French Revolution, threw themselves heart and soul into the struggle for liberty. When the Madero Revolution broke out, Carranza took the field in truly medieval fashion. He armed the peons who worked upon his great estates, and led them to war like any feudal overlord, and, when the revolution was done, Madero made him governor of Coahuila. There he was when Madero was murdered at the capital, and Huerta, seizing the presidency, sent a circular letter to the governors of the different states, ordering them to acknowledge the new dictatorship. Carranza refused even to answer the letter, declaring that he would have no dealings with a murderer and a usurper. He issued a proclamation, calling the Mexican people to arms, proclaiming himself first chief of the revolution, and inviting the friends of liberty to rally around him. Then he marched out from his capital and took the field, where he assisted in the early fighting around Torreón. After a short time Carranza marched his force from Coahuila, where things were happening, straight across the Republic into the state of Sonora, where nothing was happening. Villa had begun heavy fighting in Chihuahua State, Urbina and Herrera in Durango, Blanco and others in Coahuila, and Gonzales near Tampico. In times of upheaval like these, it is inevitable that there shall be some preliminary squabbling over the ultimate spoils of war. Among the military leaders, however, there was no such dissension. Villa having just been unanimously elected general chief of the constitutionalist army by a remarkable gathering of all the independent guerrilla leaders before Torreón, an unheard-of event in Mexican history. But over in Sonora, Maitorena and Pesquiera were already squabbling over who should be governor of the state, and threatening revolutions against each other. Carranza's reported purpose in crossing to the west with his army was to settle this dispute, but that doesn't seem possible. Other explanations are that he desired to secure a seaport for the constitutionalists on the west, that he wanted to settle the Yaqui land question, and that in the quiet of a comparatively peaceful state he could better organize the provisional government of the new republic. 
He remained there six months, apparently doing nothing whatever, keeping a force of more than six thousand good fighters practically inoperative, attending banquets and bullfights, establishing and celebrating innumerable new national holidays, and issuing proclamations. His army, twice or three times as big as the disheartened garrisons of Guaymas and Mazatlan, kept up a lazy siege of those places. Mazatlan fell only a short time ago, I think, as did Guaymas. Only a few weeks ago, Provisional Governor Maitorena was threatening counter-revolutions against General Alvardo, chief of arms of Sonora, because he would not guarantee the governor's safety, and evidently proposing to upset the revolution because Maitorena was uncomfortable in the palace at Hermosillo. During all that time not a word was said about any aspect of the land question, as far as I could learn. The Yaqui Indians, the expropriation of whose lands is the blackest spot in the whole black history of the Diaz regime, got nothing but a vague promise. Upon that the whole tribe joined the revolution. But a few months later most of them went back to their homes and began again their hopeless campaign against the white man. Carranza hibernated until early in the spring of this year, when, the purpose of his Sonora sojourn evidently having been accomplished, he turned his face toward the territory where the real revolution was being fought. Within that six months the aspect of things had entirely changed. Except for the northern part of Nuevo León, and most of Coahuila, northern Mexico was constitutionalist territory almost from sea to sea, and Villa, with a well-armed, well-disciplined force of ten thousand men, was entering on the Torreón campaign. All this was accomplished almost single-handed by Villa. Carranza seems to have contributed nothing but congratulations. He had, indeed, formed a provisional government. An immense throng of opportunist politicians surrounded the first chief, loud in their protestations of devotion to the cause, liberal with proclamations, and extremely jealous of each other and of Villa. Little by little Carranza's personality seemed to be engulfed in the personality of his cabinet, although his name remained as prominent as ever. It was a curious situation. Correspondents who were with him during these months have told me how secluded the first chief finally became. They almost never saw him. Very rarely did they speak with him. Various secretaries, officials, cabinet members stood between them and him, polite, diplomatic, devious gentlemen, who transmitted their questions to Carranza on paper, and brought them back his answers written out, so that there would be no mistake. But, whatever he did, Carranza left Villa strictly alone, to undergo defeats if he must, or make mistakes, so much so that Villa himself was forced to deal with foreign powers as if he were the head of the government. There is no doubt that the politicians at Hermosillo sought in every way to make Carranza jealous of Villa's growing power in the north. In February the first chief began a leisurely journey northward, accompanied by three thousand troops, with the ostensible object of sending reinforcements to Villa and of making his provisional capital in Juarez when Villa left for Torreón. Two correspondents, however, who had been in Sonora, told me that the officers of this immense bodyguard believed that they were to be sent against Villa himself. 
In Hermosillo, Carranza had been remote from the world's new centers. No one knew but what he might be accomplishing great things. But when the first chief of the revolution began to move toward the American border, the attention of the world was concentrated upon him, and the attention of the world revealed so little to concentrate upon that rumors rapidly spread of the non-existence of Carranza. For example, one paper said that he was insane, and another alleged that he had disappeared altogether. I was in Chihuahua at the time. My paper wired me these rumors, and ordered me to go and find Carranza. It was at the immensely exciting time of the Benton murder. All the protestations and half-failed threats of the British and American governments converged upon Villa. But by the time I had received the message, Carranza and his cabinet had arrived at the border, and broken the six months' silence in a startling way. The first chief's declaration to the State Department was practically this, quote, You have made a mistake in addressing representations in the Benton case to General Villa. They should be addressed to me as first chief of the revolution and head of the provisional constitutionalist government. Moreover, the United States has no business to address, even to me, any representations concerning Benton, who was a British subject. I have received no envoy from the government of Great Britain. Until I do, I will make no answer to the representations of any other government. Meanwhile, a thorough investigation will be made of the circumstances of Benton's death, and those responsible for it will be judged strictly according to law." At the same time, Villa received a pretty plain intimation that he was to keep out of international affairs, and Villa gratefully shut up. That was the situation when I went to Nogales. Nogales, Arizona, and Nogales, Sonora, Mexico, really form one big straggling town. The international boundary runs along the middle of the street, and at a small customs house lounge a few ragged Mexican sentries, smoking interminable cigarettes, and evidently interfering with nobody, except to collect export taxes from everything that passes to the American side. The inhabitants of the American town go across the line to get good things to eat, to gamble, to dance, and to feel free. The Mexicans cross to the American side when somebody is after them. I arrived at midnight and went at once to a hotel in the Mexican town where the cabinet and most of the political hangers-on of Carranza were staying, sleeping four in a room, on cots in the corridors, on the floor, and even on the stairs. I was expected. A temperamental constitutionalist consul up the line, to whom I had explained my errand, evidently considered it of great importance, for he had telegraphed to Nogales that the entire fate of the Mexican Revolution depended upon Mr. Reed's seeing the first chief of the Revolution immediately upon his arrival. However, everybody had gone to sleep, and the proprietor, routed out of his back office, said that he hadn't the slightest idea what the names of any of the gentlemen were, or where they slept. Yes, he said, he had heard that Carranza was in town. We went around kicking doors and Mexicans, until we stumbled upon an unshaven but courteous gentleman, who said that he was the collector of customs for the whole of Mexico under the new government. He waked up in turn the Secretary of the Navy, who routed out the Secretary of the Treasury. The Secretary of the Treasury finally flushed the Secretary of Hacienda, 
who finally brought us to the room of the Secretary of Foreign Relations, Senor Isidro Fabela. Senor Fabela said that the first chief had retired and couldn't see me, but that he himself would give me immediately a statement of just what Carranza thought about the Benton incident. Now none of the newspapers had ever heard of Senor Fabela before. They were all clamoring to their correspondents, wanting to know who he was. He seemed to be such an important member of the provisional government, and yet his antecedents were not known at all. At different times he apparently filled most of the positions of the first chief's cabinet. Rather medium height and distinguished looking, suave, courteous, and evidently very well educated, his face was decidedly Jewish. We talked for a long time, sitting on the edge of his bed. He told me what the first chief's aims and ideals were, but in them I could discern nothing of the first chief's personality whatever. Oh, yes, he said, of course I could see the first chief in the morning, of course he would receive me. But when we came right down to cases, Senor Fabela told me that the first chief would answer no questions outright. They had all to be put in writing, he said, and submitted to Fabela first. He would then take them to Carranza and bring back his answer. Accordingly, the next morning I wrote out on paper about twenty-five questions and gave them to Fabela. He read them carefully. Ah, he said, there are many questions here that I know the first chief will not answer. I advise you to strike them out. Well, if he doesn't answer them, I said, all right, but I would like to give him a chance to see them. He could only refuse to answer them. No, said Fabela politely, you had better strike them out now. I know exactly what he will answer and what he will not. You see, some of your questions might prejudice him against answering all the rest, and you would not want that to occur, would you? Senor Fabela, I said, are you sure that you know just what Don Venustiano won't answer? I know that he won't answer these, he replied, indicating four or five which dealt rather specifically with the platform of the constitutionalist government such as land distribution, direct elections, and the right of suffrage among the peons. "'I will bring back your answers in twenty-four hours,' he said. "'Now I will take you to see the chief, but you must promise me this, that you will not ask him any questions, that you will simply go into the room, shake hands with him, and say, how do you do, and leave again immediately.' I promised, and together with another reporter, followed him across the square to the beautiful little yellow municipal palace. We stood a while on the patio. The place was thronged with self-important Mexicans buttonholing other self-important Mexicans, who rushed from door to door with portfolios and bundles of papers. Occasionally, when the door of the department of the secretaryship opened, a roar of typewriters smote our ears. Officers in uniform stood about on the portico waiting for orders. General Obregón, commander of the Army of Sonora, was outlining in a loud voice the plans for his march south upon Guadalajara. He started for Hermosillo three days afterward, and marched his army four hundred miles through a friendly country in three months. Although Obregón had shown no startling capacity for leadership, Carranza had made him general-in-chief of the Army of the Northwest, with a rank equal to Villa's. 
talking to him was a stout red-haired mexican woman in a black satin princess dress embroidered with jet with a sword at her side she was colonel ramona flores chief of staff to the constitutionalist general carrasco who operates in tepic her husband had been killed while an officer in the first revolution leaving her a gold mine with the proceeds of which she had raised a regiment and taken the field against the wall lay two sacks of gold ingots which she had brought north to purchase arms and uniforms for her troops polite american concession seekers shifted from one foot to the other hat in hand the ever-present arms and ammunition drummers poured into the ears of whoever would listen praises of their guns and bullets four armed sentries stood at the palace doors and others lounged around the patio there were no more in sight except two who flanked a little door halfway down the corridor these men seemed more intelligent than the others anybody who passed was scrutinized carefully and those who paused at the door were questioned according to some thorough formula every two hours this guard was changed the relief was in charge of a general and a long colloquy took place before the change was effected what room is that i asked senor fabela that is the office of the first chief of the revolution he answered i waited for perhaps an hour and during that time i noticed that nobody entered the room except senor fabela and those he took with him finally he came over to me and said all right the first chief will see you now we followed him the soldiers on guard threw up their rifles who are these senores asked one it's all right they are friends answered fabela and opened the door it was so dark within that at first we could see nothing over the two windows blinds were drawn on one side was a bed still unmade and on the other a small table covered with papers upon which stood a tray containing the remains of breakfast a tin bucket full of ice with two or three bottles of wine stood in a corner as our eyes became accustomed to the light we saw the gigantic khaki-clad figure of don venustiano carranza sitting in a big chair there was something strange in the way he sat there with his hands on the arms of the chair as if he had been placed in it and told not to move he did not seem to be thinking nor to have been working you couldn't imagine him at that table you got the impression of a vast inert body a statue he rose to meet us a towering figure seven feet tall it seemed i noticed with a kind of shock that in that dark room he wore smoked glasses and although ruddy and full-cheeked i felt that he was not well the thing you feel about tuberculosis patients that tiny dark room where the first chief of the revolution slept and ate and worked and from which he hardly ever emerged seemed too small like a cell fabela had entered with us he introduced us one by one to carranza who smiled a vacant expressionless smile bowed slightly and shook our hands we all sat down indicating the other reporter who could not speak spanish fabela said these gentlemen have come to greet you on behalf of the great newspapers which they represent this gentleman says that he desires to present his respectful wishes for your success carranza bowed again slightly and rose as fabela stood up as if to indicate that the interview was over allow me to assure the gentlemen 
he said, of my grateful acceptance of their good wishes. Again we all shook hands, but as I took his hand I said in Spanish, Señor Don Venustiano, my paper is your friend and the friend of the Constitutionalists. He stood there as before, a huge mask of a man, but as I spoke he stopped smiling. His expression remained as vacant as before, but suddenly he began to speak. To the United States I say the Benton case is none of your business. Benton was a British subject. I will answer to the delegates of Great Britain when they come to me with representations of their government. Why should they not come to me? England now has an ambassador in Mexico City who accepts invitations to dinner from Huerta, takes off his hat to him, and shakes hands with him. When Madero was murdered, the foreign powers flocked to the spot like vultures to the dead, and fawned upon the murderer because they had a few subjects in the Republic who were petty tradesmen doing a dirty little business. The first chief ended as abruptly as he had begun, with the same immobility of expression, but he clenched and unclenched his hands and gnawed his mustaches. Fabela hurriedly made a move toward the door. The gentlemen are very grateful to you for having received them, he said nervously, but Don Venustiano paid no attention to him. Suddenly he began again, his voice pitched a little higher and louder. These cowardly nations thought they could secure advantages by standing in with the government of the usurper, but the rapid advancement of the constitutionalists showed them their error, and now they find themselves in a predicament. Fabela was plainly nervous. "'When does the Torreon campaign begin?' he asked, attempting to change the subject. "'The killing of Benton was due to a vicious attack on Villa by an enemy of the revolutionists,' roared the first chief, speaking louder and louder and more rapidly. "'And England, the bully of the world, finds herself unable to deal with us unless she humiliates herself by sending a representative to the constitutionalists.' so she tried to use the United States as a cat's paw. More shame to the United States, he cried, shaking his fists, that she allowed herself to join with these infamous powers. The unhappy Fabela made another attempt to dam the dangerous torrent, but Carranza took a step forward, and raising his arm shouted, I tell you that, if the United States intervenes in Mexico upon this petty excuse, intervention will not accomplish what it thinks, but will provoke a war which, besides its own consequences, will deepen a profound hatred between the United States and the whole of Latin America, a hatred which will endanger the entire political future of the United States. He ceased talking on a rising note, as if something inside had cut off his speech. I tried to think that here was a voice of aroused Mexico thundering at her enemies, but it seemed like nothing so much as a slightly senile old man, tired and irritated. Then we were outside in the sunlight, with Señor Fabela agitatedly telling me not to publish what I had heard, or at least to let him see the dispatch. I stayed at Nogales a day or two longer. The next day after my interview, the typewritten paper upon which my questions had been printed was returned to me the answers written in five different handwritings. Newspaper men were in high favor at Nogales. They were treated always with the utmost courtesy by the members of the provisional cabinet, 
but they never seemed to reach the first chief. I tried often to get from these cabinet members the least expression of what their plans were for the settlement of the troubles which caused the revolution, but they seemed to have none, except a constitutional government. During all the times I talked with them, I never detected one gleam of sympathy for, or understanding of, the peons. Now and again I surprised quarrels about who was going to fill the high posts of the new Mexican government. Villa's name was hardly ever mentioned. When it was, it was in this manner. We have every confidence in Villa's loyalty and obedience. As a fighting man, Villa has done very well, very well indeed, but he should not attempt to mingle in the affairs of government, because, of course, you know, Villa is only an ignorant peon. He has said many foolish things and made many mistakes which we will have to remedy. And scarcely a day passed but what Carranza would give out a statement from headquarters. There is no misunderstanding between General Villa and myself. He obeys my orders without question, as any common soldier. It is unthinkable that he would do anything else. I spent a good deal of time loafing around the municipal palace, but I never saw Carranza again but once. It was toward sunset, and most of the generals, drummers, and politicians had gone to dinner. I lounged on the edge of the fountain in the middle of the patio, talking with some soldiers. Suddenly the door of that little office opened, and Carranza himself stood framed in it, arms hanging loosely by his sides, his fine old head thrown back, as he stared blindly over our heads across the wall to the flaming clouds in the west. We stood up and bowed, but he didn't notice us. Walking with slow steps, he came out and went along the portico toward the door of the palace. The two guards presented arms. As he passed, they shouldered their rifles and fell in behind him. At the doorway he stopped and stood there a long time, looking out on the street. The four sentries jumped to attention. The two men behind him grounded their arms and stopped. The first chief of the revolution clasped his hands behind his back, his fingers working violently. Then he turned, and, pacing between the two guards, went back to the little dark room. End of section 39